Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show number 495. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have a great show and a great story coming today. But I want to start off with some very sad news that I was informed by an email from Jeff Carlson's wife. Jeff, unfortunately, has passed away. Jeff Carlson was a science fiction writer, 48-year-old, and he was took by a very aggressive cancer. I've just learned yesterday, to be quite a 48-year-old. And Jeff was one of the ones, you know, long-time listeners to Starship Sova, you know, throughout the beginning of Starship Sova is when we started doing the audio stories. And I've interviewed Jeff loads of times, to be quite honest. But I was just looking back through the, the archives. Jeff was there on show 35, on 158, on number 88, 268, he was so kind in giving stories and, you know, trying to get this, the whole podcast and trying to get his stories out there. And to be told of Jeff's passing at 48 year old by, you know, by, again, by cancer, just me thoughts to Jeff, you know, a young family as well. That's just gut-wrenching news. Just horrible. I'm going to wish all, you know, my condolences to Jeff's family. And I know all Starship Sova fans will as well. You know, it's what a just a, to be taken so young. Do you know what I mean? A great talent. And just, you know, the stories Jeff could write and the stories Jeff could tell. Do you know what I mean? His wit. Oh, he was as sharp as a dart when we kind of interviewed. Do you know what I mean? Like wild, to be quite honest. Athletic, you know, if you. You look at some of Jeff's stories and, you know, his lifestyle, you know, the plague year. He was all an action-adventure guy anyways, and, he, and those kind of stories came from that lifestyle he had, you know, in the mountains. Oh, it's just horrible news. That's just horrible. So my thoughts go out to Jeff's family as well, you know, my, our condolences here at Starship Sofa. I've had a little mention as well of Jeremy, our ed- editor over there. Oops, there's my phone and my wife. <laughs> I sound like I'm full of cold, but I don't feel it. But I'll tell you what, you know, before I get into Jeremy thing, what is happening, the bloody dog, one of the dogs jumped on the bed this morning, scratched my eye. Oh, man, it's one, it's all bloodshot, red streaming. So <laughs> if I have to stop and start wiping with this tissue paper, it's driving us mad. Anyway, Jeremy says he's going to Helsinki to attend in the Worldcon this year. And he says he's going to be doing two panels, one on flash fiction and one on editing. And he says, any of the listeners, you know, writers and authors and narrators want to be there, give them a shout, come over, look them up and, you know, say hello. So that would be lovely if you kind of, kind of meet up with Jeremy, our editor there, and have a chat. He's first time he's, I think he's first time he's going to a, like one of these world con conventions, but you know, he's from Australia, he's gonna get himself all the way up to Helsinki. It's a travel for him, so if you could do that, that would be fantastic. So, let us jump into our main fiction, and it is The Woman I Used to Be by Jerry Lean, originally pum- published in Grimdark Magazine, issue number one. I'll give you a little heads up about Jerry. Jerry Lean lives in Northern Virginia and originally hails from Seattle. She has work appearing in Nature, Orson Scott's Card, Intergalactic Medicine Show, Daily Science Fiction, Grievous Angel, Grimdark and others. She recently caught the editing book and is preparing to edit her fourth anthology. 
for an independent press. And you can find more at Geraldine.com. Margaret lives the good life on a small piece of rural New South Wales, Australia, with an amazing man and a couple of pets, and all the usual biting and stinging critters that make great horror stories for overseas visitors. And this is a great narration as well, Margaret. Thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Woman I Used to Be by Jerry Lean I sit in the comfortable chair that I've been told was never my favourite and enjoy the unexpected quiet of the house. Everyone is out. I'm so much better that they think it's safe to leave me. I'm not really better. If better is having my memories back, but I've learned to fake it and to research. I must have had mad skills at that. I laugh at that. Mad skills. It's a funny saying, unless you feel like you're losing your mind, then not so much. But also funny that this way of phrasing, silly sayings like that, come naturally when I'm just thinking. They flow in my head, as if language and memory are not linked at all. But I know they are. As soon as I try to talk to Nathan or Louisa, my words falter. I reach for names, ideas, just basic statements or questions. And they're like quicksilver, darting here and there, as I try to form complete sentences the way she would. She, I, pronouns are difficult. My name is Susanna. I've apparently never liked that name, or so the woman who says she's my mother claims. Carla, I call her that, and she frowns. But it feels wrong to call her mum. Shouldn't I feel something for her if she's my mum? Shouldn't I feel anything but this overwhelming panic and the sense that I'm disappointing them all? My mother, my husband, my daughter. Louisa at least resembles me. I feel nothing when I look at her, but I can logically see the similarities and I'm able to say, yes, I probably contributed DNA to that one. But Nathan, with his sad, beseeching eyes, with his oh-so-patient voice, I have the feeling he's not really my type, even though I can't tell you what my type is. Although I dream of another man, a tall man, with skin like mahogany, partly from genetics, partly from being in the sun. How do I know this when I don't know his name? Just his face, just his arms lifted high as he tells me something I can't hear. I can never hear his words, but I feel inspired anyway. He inspires me. Until I wake up and realise he has no place in this life I can't remember. I've asked Nathan and Carla about the man... In the most general terms, I can tell it hurts them when I don't remember the right things, but they also seem to like it when I show an interest in my life. They don't remember anyone matching the dark man's description. I've asked the house AI also, just in case they never met the man, just in case I was having an affair. The house AI doesn't recall any visitors that match the description except an appraiser that came to the house when we were thinking of taking out another mortgage. But the picture the AI brought up wasn't the man from my dreams. Susanna? The house AI's voice never startles me now that I've programmed it to be male when I am alone. I've given it a deep voice, resonant with pain, or that's how the voice option I chose struck me. It's also how I imagine the dark man sounding 
if I could only hear what he's saying. The AI is my best friend. It knows me better than I do, obviously. But it also seems to know me better than my family does. The AI goes by Drew. Louisa named it when we first moved into this house, or so I'm told. She wanted a name that could be male or female. When I'm not alone, the AI speaks in a nurturing female voice that sounds like a grandmother. It has told me Louisa picked the default voice. It has also told me, when I asked, that Nathan keeps it this way when he's alone. I was sort of hoping he made the AI sound sultry. It would make me feel less guilty that a dream about a man who isn't the husband I can't remember. True. Are you sure I lived here before the shuttle crash? This is not the first time I have asked this question. Perhaps I keep hoping for a different answer. Although, isn't that the definition of crazy? Yes, you lived here before the shuttle crash. I love the way it answers. No hesitation, no making excuses, just the truth. Susanna, why do you keep asking that? I huddle deeper into the chair making myself small, wishing I could disappear. I don't belong here, or that's what it feels like. The doctor said it would take time. I know. I hear the whirring of Drew's retrieval arm unfolding from the ceiling. It picks up the throw from the couch and carries it over, setting it gently on my lap. I'm not cold. Your vitals say differently. I give up and wrap the throw around me. It's white nubby wool, and Nathan said I knitted it one very boring voyage. I don't remember, of course. I close my eyes and try to knit, try to let muscle memory take over. But my hands look more like they're afflicted with a tick than actually skilled at knitting. I smell the throw. There's a faint whiff of fragrance the same one that sits on my vanity in the bedroom I share, mm, used to share, with Nathan. The thing is, I can't stand the scent. Nathan says I wore it every day, and it's the only perfume on my vanity. But still, the scent makes me feel slightly sick. Why would I hate it now? What part of memory would control reaction to a perfume? Then again, I had extensive head injuries after the crash. I know, because I lay alone in the cockpit, buried in rubble from the building we crashed into. This, I actually remember. This is my first memory. My birth, if you will. Waking alone, unless you count the body lying next to me. Co-pilot, I was told later, and waiting for someone to find me to dig me out. Nathan told me the doctors gave me virtually no chance to survive. On the fully packed shuttle, only five others made it. I don't know why we crashed. I don't know if it was my fault. That haunts me as I sit alone, because the thing is, if I close my eyes and let muscle memory take over, I can feel the controls of the shuttle. I reach for switches and buttons, and I hit knobs overhead that control all manner of manoeuvring and fuel balances and small nav changes. I remember this deep in the fibres of my fingers. I can imagine the headphones I would be wearing. The dark glasses we all wore once we hit Atmo partially because the brightness was a shock after being in space, <laughs> but mostly because it made us look so damn cool. I found an extra pair in the house. My pair were crumpled in the cockpit, nearly as crumpled as I was, and I tried them on. They felt familiar. They looked right, too. Eyes unfathomable in the mirrored lenses, hidden. 
unrecognisable. Everyone looks the same in the flight suits. Hair has to be up in a bun if you wear it long. Flight cap, the sunglasses. The dark blue uniform that is starched straight. The fit loose enough to mask a figure. You can tell men from women, usually, if only by the height and bulk differential. But one brunette woman from another? Mm, be tough to tell them apart. Except once they got in the air. Once they started to fly. Everyone had their little habits. I was known for... Why can't I remember that part? I reach up again, as if I'm in the cockpit, and feel for the controls. I practically can see them when I close my eyes. Was I a good pilot, Drew? Define good. I smile. It's cagey, our Drew, but also precise. It could measure good in numbers of runs done on time, in numbers of passengers who complained of service, in nicks and dings on the fuselage, in how much fuel I used. I know this, because we've been down this road before, Drew and I. Always when the others are out. I wonder, though, if it tells them I've asked these things. Given my record, would you expect me to crash a shuttle on a routine approach to a spaceport I've flown in and out of hundreds of times? No. It's the same answer every time. Can you analyse the wreckage and see if... Access to the files of the Pandora is blocked. This, too, is its standard answer. I think of a new question to ask. Do they know that we've queried now several times? No. Each time I framed the query as hypothetical. That should raise no flags. I lean forward. The throw I supposedly made slipping off me. Why would you do that? Because there is a long pause. It is unlike the AI to lack words. But it has been programmed to be sensitive, to have tact. Say it, Drew. Spit it out. You are unhappy. You are resisting your family. You isolate yourself inside a mind that may never recover the old memories. Your future lies in making new memories. But how can you, when you are so... Alone. Things don't add up, Drew. So you have noted before. Was I here since Nathan brought the house? Yes, Susanna. I pull the throw up and back over my legs. I was always so cold now. Drew was right. Can you lie, Drew? If necessary. It is the answer I get each time I ask. And I haven't had the heart, or maybe the balls, to ask what would make lying necessary. I'm tired. The house lights immediately dim. Sleep. I don't argue. I just pull the throw up and try to ignore the perfume. How did I ever like this scent? So deep and resinous. Another scent comes to me. Citrus and green. Like the hills of... Where? I fall asleep, trying to remember. And my dreams are snippets of things that... make no sense. But also sadly leave me no wiser about the life I've forgotten. I am staring in the mirror. It is three months since I woke in the hospital bed to find strangers clustered around me. Strangers who look at me with such love and hope that I was gentle as I said, You've got the wrong bed. Those words echo, and I feel a memory and try to catch it. This is wrong. Dr. Handley had said not to reach out 
to let the memories come to me. I know my heart is beating too fast, so I close my eyes and breathe slowly. I go back to the hospital bed. Pretend I'm opening my eyes to see the three of them, Carla, Nathan and Louisa. I've yet to warm up to Carla and Nathan, but Louisa is such a sweet girl, just ready to leave childhood behind, but still needing her mother. A girl always needs her mother. But if that's true, why don't I need Carla more? I see their faces and say out loud, You've got the wrong bed. The memory hovers, and I force myself not to reach for it. I hear a voice, strained and male and full of hate. So much hate, I almost pull back and let the memory go the way of the other snippets. Susanna, your pulse rate has increased dramatically. Are you all right? Drew sounds concerned. It's voice so different than the one I just heard. Drew's voice makes me feel safe, the way Matthew's always did. Matthew? You've got the wrong bed, I say again, since it seems to be the trigger, but nothing else comes. Then I hear the front door open, and Drew informs me, in her grandmotherly voice, that Louisa is home. She yells out, Mom, I'm in here. I wait, pulling her into me, feeling something real and true when I hold her. Children are the greatest blessing. Matthew always said so. But we never tried again, not after Kate died. Kate? I tighten my hold on Louisa. I bury my nose in her long brown hair. Her shampoo smells of evergreen and mint. It should be strawberry. Kate always loved that scent. Mom, what's wrong? I push her away from me. You're not my daughter. She frowns. What? I have a daughter, but she's not you. Kate is her name, and she's blonde, not brunette. You're making no sense. She's younger than you, too. Why couldn't I remember this before? She loved to run outside. She was outside when the drone struck. Oh, God. Outside. When the drone struck. Kate. I sink to the floor. Seeing my daughter lying in my arms. Her blood flowing over me. I would have given her all of mine if I could have. She died before help could arrive. We lived off the grid. Yes. Louisa no longer sounds like a young girl. Her voice is changing into the male voice I didn't like. Bitter, angry and filled with hate. I open my eyes, ready to run. But Louisa is gone. The house is gone. Everything is gone. I am sitting in a small white room. The space so tight that I have about three feet around the chair I'm strapped into. The air is cold and has a recycled tang like the shuttles. What is this? Hmm. It's never your husband that snaps you out of it. Always the girl. The man sounds amused. In a way, that's not at all nice. Snaps me out of what? Ha! Huh, Susanna's life! He laughs. And I try to turn. But I'm held in place by straps. Tubes seem to be shooting things into me and... Taking things out. I can't move my legs. How long have I been sitting here? What is this? It's a question I don't think will be answered. 
So I ask, who are you? Drew. Our AI? The Monitor, here at the prison. We've been over this, of course, many times by now. What? I feel my heart beating faster, and I try to work myself free of the straps, but I can't get my arms to do much more than quiver. You killed Susanna and took her shuttle, the Pandora. You overflew the spaceport and crashed the Pandora into the headquarters of the Ministry of Defence. His voice is oily now, as if he's getting to a party relishes. You remember the people who sent the drone that killed your little girl. <laughs> Thank God it was only your family out there. A drone so badly off course in a heavily populated area would have been a public relations nightmare for the government. We wanted to make you pay. I am remembering now. Matthew and I, we hatched a plan. Matthew understood how the ministry ran. I was already a pilot, so the rest was easy. We sent our story to a liberal media station, delayed to arrive after the attack. The whole world would know how our daughter died and what we'd been willing to do to get the truth out. Matthew? He died inside the ministry, just as you planned. You were supposed to die too, Claire. Claire, yes, that is my name, not Susanna. Susanna was the pilot of the shuttle I hijacked. She'd done nothing to us, except have the bad luck to look so much like me in uniform that no one would notice I had taken her place. But I didn't kill her. I wouldn't. She had a daughter too. I didn't kill Susanna. You did. There was a snake in the shed you left her tied up in. <laughs> we think, when she was struggling to get away, she disturbed it. It bit her. She died slowly in agony. I take a deep, ragged breath. This can't be right. I didn't want Louisa to lose her mother. I'd been careful when I bound her. Knew the house AI would tell the family she'd left with a visitor and never come back. Matthew had chosen the shed because the AI didn't extend to that. The family would find her. I would never have done this. Three hundred and fourteen people dead because of you, Claire. You were very unlucky to have survived. Why make me live Susanna's life then? Why not all of them? Susanna's life fits you best and hurts you most. He says this with such a pleasure. I feel my insides twist. How long have I been here? Time is irrelevant. <laughs> Let's just say a while, okay? But you always wake up. That's the point, actually. Letting you live in that life, knowing you don't belong, finding your way back to yourself, always through Louisa, then reminding you of the truth. <laughs> he laughs, and it's the kind of laugh of a man who does nothing all day but watch people suffer. The family? I'm not really with them. Do you think we would do that to them? As far as they're concerned, the person who killed Susanna is dead. I start to feel woozy, and I hear his voice, soft and dry, like the scales of a snake. Oh, and Claire. I lied about Matthew. He's here, too. He likes the life he's leading. Has settled into it so well that we have to wake him up manually to remind him why he's here. So he'll suffer like you are right now. But he's happy, Claire. 
with someone new. I bet you tell him the same thing about me. He laughs. <laughs> you say that every time. You're wrong every time. Nighty night, Claire. I feel heavy. My eyes close and I try to get out. He dreams of me, but I can't. I'm Claire. I'm Claire. I'm Claire, I'm Claire. I say it over and over in my mind, trying to sabotage whatever tech sends me back to Susanna's world. I have a feeling I've tried this before. Maybe this time it will work. Again, the definition of a crazy person. But it's all I have. I'm Claire. The world goes black. I hear the faintest sound of a monitor beeping along with my heart. I open my eyes, see three people hovering around my bed, love and hope clear in their eyes. I'm... Who the hell am I? There you go. Great little, great example, Jerry. Oh, is is keeping you interested in the story, not making you wane off it. You know what I mean? Just just holding your attention till you get to the end. Just little nibblets of of information there. Fantastic, great story. And Margaret, lovely, lovely narration. Thank you so much. More, please, Jeremy. Well done overall. Now I forgot to mention at the beginning of the show. It is the end of the month. We have Mr. JJ Campanella, Jim, sir. Greetings and volumetric iterations, my libationally innocent listeners, and welcome to this July 2017 Science News Update. I'm your host for this Deltonially Socratic Science Podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Welcome to the ninth anniversary of this Science Podcast segment. Hard to believe I've been sounding off on the sofa for so long, isn't it? And I can keep easy track of how long it's actually been since it's the same age as my son. At any rate, let's get this aging show on the road. I'm not even sure how to start this for a story, or whether it's even a story at all. I'll let you guys be the judge. Okay, so I listened to Kids Place Live on XM Sirius Radio when my kids are in the car. For those of you in Europe or elsewhere, XM is a subscription radio satellite service. At any rate, I was amazed to hear a song a couple of weeks back called Serotonin by a musical artist whose name is Mr. Cookie Jar. All right, despite the silly name, Mr. Cookie is a very talented L.A. musician who specializes in kids' music. And let me tell you, Kids' music has changed considerably from my day. The Grammy-winning album, Kids' album for this year, by a group called Secret Agent 23 Skidoo, worked with the uh, Asheville Symphony Orchestra to create songs with combinations of classical music and rapping. Unimaginable stuff, which is really quite impressive and complex, given given, uh, that it's supposed to be for children. But at any rate, I was amazed at... The song Serotonin, because as the title might imply, this is a song about the neurotransmitter serotonin. I could not believe my ears that somebody was actually trying to educate kids not only on serotonin, but on another neurotransmitter called oxytocin. I'll play you a little bit of Mr. Cookie's song in just a moment. Let me read you from his press release about the serotonin song. Uh, and forgive the silly voice. I don't get to do them very often as I'd like, here at least. Mr. Cookie Jar returns with another super catchy postmodern party anthem for all. Serotonin, a celebration of human anatomy's favorite chemical compound. Breaking down the elements of uber-electrifying the contagious joy. Mr. Cookie Jar harnesses the power of the heart and brain in a musically inspired concoction of pop, Motown, hip-hop, and EDM. Want endless serotonin? All it takes is endless la-la-love. 
Mr. Cookie Jar got it covered. So let me just play you a bit of Mr. Cookie Jar. Not too much, since we don't want to get into any copyright issues here. I want endless serotonin. And all it takes is endless la la love. Serotonin, or 5-hydrocytryptamine, is popularly thought to be a contributor to feelings of well-being and happiness. Dig it. Serotonin, serotonin, you get a boost when your heart's wide open. So be kind and let it shine with emotion. And may your serotonin flow like an ocean. Serotonin and oxytocin, the butterflies in your tummy stop the motion. So stay wise, warm and fuzzy, that's a notion. And may your serotonin flow like an ocean. Flow like a Zen master, go pen your own chapter. Happily before right now and ever after. Open up doors to warm smiles and laughter. Life's a dance floor, go be a fly dancer. Be goofy, be kooky, stay true. You be one with the force and the force be with you. With you, this you not true. Do your thing when you do. Everybody in the room gets to ping a serotonin. So, as Mr. Cookie Jar explains in his song... Serotonin is needed as a stimulating neurotransmitter. It sends signals between your nerve cells. Serotonin is found mostly in the digestive system, although it's also in blood platelets and throughout the central nervous system. Uh, Serotonin is made from the essential amino acid tryptophan, and this amino acid must enter the body through your diet and is commonly found in foods like nuts and cheese and red meat. And tryptophan deficiencies can actually lead to lower serotonin levels. And that can result in mood disorders, like anxiety and depression. Serotonin helps reduce depression, regulate anxiety, heal wounds, stimulate nausea, and maintain bone health. It is quite important. Here's a quote about serotonin from Dr. Barry Jacobs, who's a neuroscientist from Princeton. He says, quote, Low serotonin levels may explain why some people fall into gang and criminal activities. That culture brings experiences that facilitate serotonin release. Unhealthy attention-seeking behavior can also be a cry for what serotonin brings. Prozac, fluoxetine, prevents the breakdown of serotonin in depressed individuals and helps to continue their neural stimulation to help keep them happy or at least not depressed. Oxytocin has been dubbed the love or trust hormone because it's believed to facilitate bonding and trust and attachment. But the role and function of oxytocin isn't exactly quite that straightforward. It's part of an entire suite of brain chemicals, along with serotonin, that coordinate social function. Uh, For example, oxytocin facilitates bonding between males and females and mothers and offspring. It helps with interpretation of social cues, allowing people to quickly assess facial expressions um, and make friend or foe kinds of judgments. It also plays a role in the way people respond to stress by promoting a sort of calming anti-anxiety effect. Uh, Another popular neuroscientist, Dr. Paul Zak of Loma Linda University, suggests that a simple way to keep oxytocin flowing is to give somebody a hug. Quote, he says, interpersonal touch not only raises oxytocin, but reduces cardiovascular stress and improves the immune system. Rather than just a handshake, go in for the hug. I recommend at least eight each day. Unquote. As weird as Mr. Cookie Jar's song about serotonin and oxytocin may be, I gotta give him creds for his positive message. He's trying to tell kids that in order to be happy, you need to help others and make them happy, so that when you help the production of serotonin in others, you create pleasure and happiness in yourself. Okay, it's a trite philosophy, but hey, there's nothing wrong with trite when it teaches the right social message. The big problem with Mr. Cookie Jar's song is that he dreams for oceans of serotonin, endless serotonin. An ocean of serotonin will lead to something called severe serotonin syndrome. Too much serotonin causes symptoms that range from mild, sort of shivering and diarrhea, to severe rigidity, muscle rigidity, fever, seizures, 
severe serotonin syndrome can actually be fatal if it's not treated. Serotonin syndrome occurs when you take medications that cause high levels of the chemical serotonin to accumulate in your body. Serotonin syndrome can occur when you increase the dose of a drug or add a new drug to your regimen. Certain illegal drugs and dietary supplements have also been associated with serotonin syndrome. So, what's my point here? Moderation in all things, Mr. Cookie Jar, even when it comes to things that are the core of your neurologic happiness. You don't want too much happy, man. Okay, let's see if we can wander back out of left field into some other news. And yes, let's go into right field. So my son is a strict carnivore, and he was horrified with the next story to the point where he refuses to go on hikes here on the East Coast now, the U.S. anymore. What's the story? Well, Megan Multaney, who's a staff writer for the popular magazine Wired, reported on a strain of tick called the Lone Star Tick found in the southern U.S. that has made its way as far north as Long Island and, and even lower New England. So what's so special about this tick that has a star on its back? Well, here it is. After one bite of this tick, you will develop a dangerous allergy to meat. I can hear the gasp of shock out there in podcast land from my fellow lovers of roast beef and bacon. Oh, the horror, the horror. So yeah, one bite is enough to reprogram your immune system to forever reject even the smallest nibble of perfectly crisp bacon. For years, physicians and researchers only reported the allergy in places the Lone Star Tick calls home, which is, again, the southeastern U.S. But recently, it started to spread north, where at least 100 cases have been reported in the last year or so. And scientists are going a little nuts, racing to trace its spread and to understand if the Lone Star Tick is expanding into new territory, or if maybe some other species of tick has now caused the allergy in other places. Dr. Thomas Platts Mills of University of Virginia is the world's leading expert on the Lone Star Tick. He's reported that something in the tick saliva hijacks humans' immune systems. It red flags uh, a sugar protein molecule called alpha-gal. This sensitivity then triggers the massive release of histamines whenever red meat is consumed. Red meat has loads of alpha-gal protein, which will then cause the allergic response to the meat. Platt Mills says, quote, There's something special about this tick. Usually a mix of genes and environmental factors combine to create allergies. That's why they can be so unpredictable in families or between families. However, when it comes to the Lone Star Tick's bite, it doesn't matter if you're predisposed or not. Just one bite, and you can render anyone really, really allergic. Unquote. Although vegans are hardly sympathetic, Platts Mills is now busy communicating the scale of this public health problem. Every day he checks local news headlines to log new cases of catastrophic hamburger version. And he spends hours on the phone gathering the latest data from allergy clinics and academic centers around the world. He's building the first real red meat allergy incidence map of the U.S. Because state health departments aren't required to report alpha-gal syndrome to the CDC. As far as a cure, well, there is none. Megan Multaney offers two suggestions. The two, her two suggestions are EpiPens and veggie burgers. She's hilarious, isn't she? <sighs> well, one thing that's not clear from the article, which frankly kind of annoys me, is the allergic reaction of the victims to protein from fowl, like chicken and duck, or other species like fish. It's never clearly mentioned whether the tissues of chickens have alpha-gal or not. I would not even bring this up, except that the article mentions red meat very specifically. I have no idea whether that's the case or not, but it would, would have been nice to know 
At any rate, it certainly brought a bit of hopefulness to my son when I pointed it out. If he got bit by the Lone Star Tick, that there may be a loophole that he could eat bird meat. He smiled for a brief second until I mentioned turkey bacon, because, frankly, even my son, the avowed carnivore, is not very fond of turkey bacon. Next story. In June, Chinese scientists broke the distance record for sending quantum entangled data. In their experiment, a satellite distributed single photons between two ground stations 750 miles apart. Researchers from multiple science institutions in China locked their telescopes onto a green laser in search of their real prize. And that was a delicate single infrared photon produced by a special crystal on the satellite producing the lasers. They filtered out the green light, and they were able to latch onto their quarry, which is a quantum signal, the likes of which has never been sent. China launched a $100 million satellite known as Quantum Experiments at Space Scale, QESS, last August from the Jinquan Satellite Launch Center in the Gobi Desert. Before the launch, researchers placed a complicated system of lasers and mirrors and a special crystal on board. When a specific laser shone on the crystal, it would create pairs of light particles known as entangled photons. The crystal makes six million pairs of photons at a time, but on the ground, the two ground stations could only detect one pair per second. The leader of the project, Dr. Chao Yang Lu, from University of Science and Technology of China, thinks quantum cryptography could be the encryption tool of the future. Properly executed, the protocol goes like this. You first measure the characteristics of photons to generate a key of ones and zeros, and you send those to your intended recipient. Then you encrypt your message with the key and send it. If a hacker tries to steal the key in transit, quantum mechanics theory says they'd instantly change it to a different set of numbers. Uh, think of Schrodinger's cat. Remember Schrodinger's cat? It was both dead and alive at the same time when you're not looking at it, but it becomes one thing or the other when you actually pay attention to it. In the same way, the hacker would instantly change the state of the photons that make up the key. So in theory, it's physically impossible to hack. Lou says his group is planning to perform the same experiment from a new satellite with even a higher orbit, which would be able to send quantum keys between cities that are even further apart. They want to exchange quantum keys between China and Austria, where some of their collaborators work. By 2030, Lu says that China plans to launch a fleet of these quantum satellites to create a global network. Because China is very lucky, he says, and benefits from a very fast decision-making political system, which other countries don't have. Next story. For those of you following along with the political football that has now become the funding for science in the U.S., the U.S. House of Representatives, a couple of weeks ago, proposed their own budget in response to President Trump's. A series of recent spending bills from the U.S. House of Representatives Appropriations Committee are rolling back Trump's requested science cuts for the 2018 fiscal year. According to a House news release, the bill that allots funding to the National Science Foundation, NASA, and other agencies proposes a $4.8 billion overall increase in discretionary funding when compared with Trump's 2018 budget, although the NSF would still see a decrease in its budget overall. Priorities for the bill include national security and continuing investments in space exploration programs, and advancing groundbreaking science and technology. Quote, however, in order to make these investments, lower priority programs will be reduced or eliminated, unquote, according to this news release. The new bill allots about $7.3 billion total for NSF, uh, which is a $133 million cut to this year's funding level. But as, uh, as the journal Science reports, 
That's $685 million above what Trump had requested, even though it's still a cut. NSF's budget for research and related activities wouldn't change from this year, though. The journal Science also points out, quote, the biggest variation in NSF's budget from 2017 would come in its major research facilities account, which funds new construction, unquote. Of the $183 million that NSF had asked for, $105 million of that were marked for the construction of two research ships, uh, the first of three vessels total. And the proposed bill axes the ships and instead uh, puts that puts those funds toward NSF research instead. And that's not really a problem. I don't know how badly we need the ships. Anyway, NASA, it states in the news release, would see $219 million more in 2018 compared to 2017, with its science programs receiving $94 million more next year. And this clashes with Trump's intended $600 million cut to NASA's overall budget. All right. So, I try to make the last story of the night related to the wonderful world of reproduction. So here's the question of the hour especially for parents of young kids out there. And you know who you are. I can tell by your red eyes. And here's the question. Sleep or sex? Which is the more imperative? A recent paper last month in the online journal eLife looks specifically at how at least one animal decides whether procreation or sleep is at the top of their list. Dr. Kyung-hee Ko of the University of Pennsylvania, has looked at how the circadian rhythm of fruit flies affects their desire for sleep or sex. All of us have experienced those nights when amorous possibilities have banished sleep from our eyes. The biological need for sleep is often counterbalanced by the drive to perform other tasks, and how this competition between conflicting choices is regulated remains an open question in the field of neurobiology. Coe shows that male fruit flies employ a specific neural circuit to balance the need to sleep and the desire to reproduce. Coe says, quote, we were interested in the question of how sleep is regulated. We wanted to see, first, whether there was any competition between sleep and courtship. And we also wanted to know in more detail what are the neural mechanisms underlying this competition, unquote. Fruit flies follow a sleep-wake cycle that's very similar to humans, with strict circadian clocks that let them sleep in the night and stay awake in the day. Mating, on the other hand, follows a very elaborate courtship ritual that's initiated by male flies, involving, among other things, extending a wing, tapping several feet, and serenading those special ladies. To investigate how fruit flies react to the conflicting desires of sleeping and mating, Cohen colleagues housed flies overnight in either male-male or male-female pairs. As expected, in the presence of female flies, male flies slept much less than they did in the presence of male flies, and the extra time not dedicated to sleeping, was spent courting. This drive to suppress sleep and engage in courtship, however, wasn't constant. If male flies were sexually satiated by being allowed to mate several times prior to the experiment, then they no longer abandoned sleep in favor of courtship. Similarly, if these flies were sleep-deprived for several hours, later, when they were faced with a female, they chose to sleep instead of initiating courtship. Anyway, okay, yeah, that might sound familiar to you parents out there. You have probably experienced the phenomenon of the mind is willing but the body is weak. As you and your spouse drift off into slumber after a long evening trying to get the kids to go to sleep themselves, or for that matter, a long day of entertaining the children. Back to the flies. Decades of research have gone into delineating which circuits regulate fruit fly courtship behavior, and almost 2% of the neurons in the male fruit fly brain express a particular transcription factor called fruitless. This is a protein. 
And a large number of these neurons are dedicated to male-specific behaviors, including courtship and aggression. When Cohen colleagues began hunting for the neural mechanisms that govern the switch between sleep and courtship, the team came across a small group of neurons that seems to be critically linked to mediating the suppression of sleep by the mating drive. When those neurons were silenced, male flies no longer displayed reduced sleep in the presence of females. These neurons, which the authors called MS1 neurons, all express the neurotransmitter called octopamine. Octopamine is analogous to the human neurotransmitter norepinephrine, which is a neurotransmitter known to regulate wakefulness in mammals. While surprisingly not expressing fruitless themselves, the MS1 neurons formed bidirectional connections with several different groups of fruitless expressing neurons. Coe says, quote, MS1 neurons receive information from the fruitless network, and they also send information to some other fruitless neurons. We think of it as an amplifier of the signal, unquote. The researchers are currently following up on other neuronal pathways that participate in this male-specific regulation of sleep, as well as trying to dissect the function and connectivity of MS1 neurons. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Keep that serotonin flowing. Carefully judge whether sleep or procreation is more important. Keep watching the skies. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. And there you go. What a show. Jim, thank you so much. All wrapped up there. Big thank you to everyone who's kind of helped out there. And I, I got through this show without wiping my eye once. There we go. And again, just a, a sad week as well. Losing a fantastic science fiction writer, Jeff Carlson. Our thoughts to Jeff's family. Just horrible news, horrible news. So, until next week, just like to say, don't forget Patreon. It's good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.